The Midwest Crime Files is an unscripted true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss heinous crimes and how they are committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. And I'm Chris. We're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that change them forever. This is our 62nd episode. 62nd? Yes, not counting patron not... episodes. That's then we're at like 75. It's, wow. It doesn't seem like we've done that many episodes. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's, so It's really weird realizing that I've done this 62 times with you and haven't wanted to eat your ass yet. <laughs> <laughs> so. Are you me? This week's story is two stories in one. But they are, they're not related to each other, but they're similar themes. And it's about parasites, so killing of parents. And we've covered a story similar in season one, episode two, The Massacre in Mount Vernon, when we talked about Tom Odell when he killed his entire family. Yeah. And so, like, this isn't the first time we've covered something like this, but, you know, it's kind of disturbing when you think about it it really is so the first story we're going to talk about today is the bentler family murders at 3 38 a.m on october 14th 2006 911 operators in southern iowa received a panic call from the home of mike and sandra bentler of bonaparte iowa the caller was a teenage girl, and she said that her mother told her to call 911 because, quote, my brother's going to do something. I don't know what. My mom's yelling at him, saying, Sean, don't, end quote. The operator could hear a woman yelling in the background, yelling, please don't, please don't, Sean. The operator then heard popping noises, followed by the caller screaming, Sean, no. Then the line went dead. That, like, I, that, with me now recently starting to work with dispatchers and stuff, I have gotten a huge amount of respect for them because they get calls like that, you know, like where it's obviously somebody's in danger. Right. Obviously something just happened, but you can't do a damn thing about it. And you have to stay calm. Yeah. And you can't freak the hell out. Then... Like I said, the line just went dead. So they didn't know what to do. They obviously traced the call and dispatched officers. But almost as soon as that call went dead, another call came in, but there was no caller on the other line. This call was from the um, cell phone of a teenage girl, Shelby Bentler. Return calls to the home landline went unanswered. Police rushed to the Bentler house, and when they arrived, they found one of the most brutal murders in Iowa history. That seems like that would be a really shitty scene to walk upon. Yes. Like, just from hearing the description from the 911 call, God, like, give it, give it up for the cops, too. Like, Yeah. Like, a, talk about traumatizing. You know, and... This kind of gets me into another point, you know, like PTSD in these yeah. kind of professions, you know, whether it be dispatching police officers, first, you know, any kind of first responder. God. Yeah. 
At 3.55 a.m., police arrived at the Bentler home. It was a beautiful and large rustic home atop a hill. Inside, they found the body of Michael Bentler in the doorway of the master bedroom. His wife, Sandra, was found deceased at the top of the stairs. The couple's daughter, Shane, was found in her bedroom closet with parts of the telephone receiver around her and an imprint of the phone on her face. So she, so she was the one that was on the phone and yes. got, damn, just damn. It looked like he actually shot through the phone into her head. Oh, shit. Just, ugh, gross. Shelby Bentler, one of the couple's other daughters, was also found inside her closet with her cell phone near her body. The last of the Bentler girls, Sheena, was found dead in her bed. All five members of the Bentler family have been shot with a 22 caliber rifle. Michael Bentler was born on May 16, 1953 in Fort Madison, Iowa. He started dating his wife, Sandra, in the 1980s. Sandra Lee Mendez was born December 5, 1958 in Fort Madison. Michael and Sandra welcomed their oldest child, son, Sean Michael Bentler, on February 5, 1984. They married in July of 84. The couple then welcomed three daughters, Sheena in 1988, Shelby in 1990, and Shane in 1992. Michael and Sandra owned multiple lumber yards and businesses, and so they were very financially secure. Okay. They bought a beautiful log cabin-style home on 445 acres of land in Bonaparte, Iowa. God, that, I would love to have that much land. Yes. So, I mean, like, I've seen the pictures. Like, it's a gorgeous house right. on a gorgeous property. They were very um, financially secure. Right. Sean made really good grades in school, and he excelled in computers. He played sports, and he enjoyed camping and hunting with his father. He was especially close to his mother. In fact, he and his mother had once went to Orlando and Mexico together on vacations. They talked almost daily, and even as an adult, Sandra continued to do her son's laundry. Sean graduated from high school in 2002 and decided to move with his friend to Quincy, Illinois. Quincy's about an hour and 20 minutes from Bonaparte. Sandra still did his laundry when he lived an hour away. That's a really committed mom. <laughs> and a mama's boy, for sure. That's definite mama's boy. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Ain't nothing wrong with it, but God, can you imagine? I mean, I guess that's no different than any other like college kid that comes home on the weekend. Yeah. Visiting their parents like, hey, I, I love, I wanted to come see you guys, but hey, can you do my laundry for me? Right. Hey, do you got $100 I can borrow for next week? Yeah. God, we're going to be doing that here in a couple couple years. Let's not, let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> the summer after high school, Sean became a father to his first daughter. He and the girl's mother broke up, but the family welcomed Sean's baby with open arms. Sean enrolled in community college in Quincy, but eventually dropped out. His parents helped him pay his bills, including his rent and his child support for his daughter. Sean moved back to Iowa in 2004 to work at his father's lumber yard. Around that time, he started dating a woman named Lexi Leslie, and she became pregnant in early 2005. 
Sean was having more problems as he had lost his driver's license and racked up $1,000 in court fines and traffic violations. In the summer of 2005, Sean led police on a high-speed chase in Iowa as he drove his motorcycle 75 miles per hour in a 35-mile-per-hour zone. Damn. Yeah. Like, I'm getting this, like, spoiled little rich kid vibes. That's what it seems like. For sure. He would later plead guilty in that case, and he was fined $500 and received a deferred sentence. <laughs> All he got was a $500 fine Yep. For, for felony criminal evasion. Right. Jesus. If he got caught driving again, he would have to serve two years in prison. So caught driving or? Caught driving because he didn't even have a license. Oh, shit. When that happened. In September of 2005, Sean became a father to his second daughter. By this time, he and Lexi Leslie had already broken up, and he had already moved back to Quincy with his friends. In early 2006, Sean was arrested for possession of marijuana and drug paraphernalia in Illinois. He started working at several jobs, including Lowe's and selling cars, but he always seemed to get fired or he would quit after a short period of time. Once again, the whole kind of spoiled rich kid syndrome, it's what it seems like. For sure. In fact, he told one boss that his he needed off because his father had died. So the boss called Sandra Bentler to express his condolences only to learn that Sean had lied. Like, that's shitty. Like, just to get out of a job, I'm going to say, oh, yeah, my dad's dead. Yeah. Like, that's the that's really shitty. His parents continued to pay his rent, his bills. And to help support his two children. I mean, I think once you're at the point where you have your own children, it's time to grow up. Right. And I don't care if it's like you're just out of high school and stuff like that, but you definitely need to grow up a little bit with that. Like, I just don't get like, no, especially after you said that we, you know, your father was dead like that, right. that at that point, I'm like, mm, do I really want, I don't think I need to support you so much anymore if. If I'm not here, I mean, you don't think I'm here anyway, so. Yeah. You know? So Sheena Lee Bentler was 17 years old at the time of her death. She was a senior in high school. She was on track to graduate early as the valedictorian of her class. She was a member of the National Honor Society, Art Club, Student Council, Choir, Society of Academic Achievement, and Trap Shooting Club. She was a talented athlete involved in cross-country, basketball, and softball. She loved being outdoors, boating, and hunting. So, if you can imagine, like, he's dropped out of college, he can't hold a job, and then his little sister's, like, the scholar-athlete valedictorian. Right. like High achiever. Like, so he's now the black sheep of the family. Right. Shelby Marie Bentler was 15 years old at the time of her death. She was a sophomore in high school. She was active in art club, basketball, track, society of academic achievement, and softball. Like the rest of her family, she enjoyed being outdoors, boating, and hunting. Shane Larie Bentler was 14 years old at the time of her death and a freshman in high school. She was active in basketball, track, softball, and art club. She loved being outdoors and boating and hunting as well. So all of his sisters were pretty accomplished, even yeah. though they were high school students. Yeah, it seems like you could tell there was probably some jealousy there then. Yeah. You know, especially with 
as big of a screw up as he had been like straight out of high school. Right. In the fall of 2006, Lexi Leslie had begun to put pressure on Sean. She wanted Sean to help take care of their daughter. She said that Sean told her about a week before the murders that, quote, his parents' death would end his financial troubles because he stood to inherit a rich estate, end quote. He also asked her if she would still allow him to be around their daughter if he killed someone. Like, it doesn't take a genius to realize that, hey, you're going to go do something stupid. Right? Like, what the hell? Like, like and, and this is why just, would you ask someone that? Like, like this, what? And this is just kind of giving me Pam vibes from last week all over again. Oh, it's why would I want to kill her? Because I'm going to inherit $500,000 whenever my mom dies. Oh, she's a whole nother mess. Yeah. <laughs> when police processed the scene at the Bentler home, they found Sean's cell phone. This was odd because Sean was living an hour and a half away in Quincy. So why was his cell phone there? Law enforcement contacted the Illinois police in Quincy and asked them to put Sean Bentler under surveillance. Sean was soon arrested by police in Quincy because he was driving his motorcycle without a valid license. And, of course, he already had an outstanding warrant for drug possession, so he was taken to jail in Quincy. Given the 911 calls that directly pointed to Sean as the assailant, he was, of course, the prime suspect. I mean... Yeah, it, like it, <laughs> this is kind of an open and shut case when somebody's screaming your name on the phone. Right. At least if, if you're not, you should be the, at least the prime suspect at right. that point. So they went to Illinois to question him. When they told him his family was dead, he seemed like genuinely upset and hysterically crying. He was very tearful, real tears, the whole shebang. He claimed that he had last seen his mother the evening of October 13th at about 10.30 p.m. when she dropped off his laundry. He said he accidentally left his cell phone in her vehicle and that she probably brought it in the house when she returned home. Plausible. And then he said he was home all night after that. So he denies any involvement. Okay. One roommate stated that Sean was home when he arrived in the early morning hours of October 14th, probably around 1 a.m. So the murders occurred like like. 345-ish. Right. Um, another roommate verified Sean was home when he woke up around 6 a.m. Was it possible that John Sean had driven from Quincy to Bonaparte, killed his family, and returned within five hours? Well, since it's only like an hour and a half drive, then yeah. Yeah, that's there's definitely. And police suspected that he left around 1.30, got to the Bentler house around 3 or 3.30, killed his family, and when he realized 911 had been called, he had to leave rather quickly, and he forgot his cell phone. When he arrived back in Quincy at about 5.30 a.m., just in time for his other roommate to come home. Right. One of Sean's socks that he was wearing had a few drops of blood on it. And it wasn't his. They were positively identified as belonging to his mother, Sandra Bentler. Jesus. Sean's roommate, who arrived home early that morning, said the gas tank was empty the next day, although he knew when he got home the night before, he had a minimum of a quarter of a tank 
of gas. So he said it wasn't uncommon for Sean to take the car without asking and that he always kept the keys in the car. So he kind of led them to believe that Sean had taken the car and driven to Bonaparte in the car. I mean, that's what it sounds like. Tire tracks from this roommate's car, which had one brand new tire, so they were very distinct, matched tire tracks found near the Bentler home on a back road where the 22 caliber rifle was found. It's not looking too good for Sean. No, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it. It seems like he did a really poor job of covering his tracks. Sean Bentler was arrested and charged with five counts of first-degree murder. At the trial, the 911 tape was, of course, the most damning piece of evidence as his sister and his mother could both be heard begging Sean for their lives. It's Jesus. just disturbing. Sean's defense said that Sandra wore glasses and the glasses were not found on her at the time of the murder. And so they said that Sandra probably could not clearly see who was killing her. The prosecutors rebutted that, though, and they said, why, if she couldn't see who was attacking her, why would she automatically assume it's her son who lives an hour and a half away? Right, that's true. You know, like, right. e even if you're saying her vision was so bad she couldn't have clearly seen it, why would she assume it was Sean? Right. This that is, doesn't make sense. This is that whole my cousin Vinny argument again. You know, and why would his sister say, Sean, don't? It right. just doesn't even make sense. But, you know, that's that's what his defense put forward. I guess everybody has to have a defense. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like he had a really good one. Well, defense attorney wasn't working with much. Right. I mean, I mean there wasn't when... a whole lot he could. Did you do it? Yeah. Well, fuck. <laughs> phone records from Sean's phone indicated he had called Lexi Leslie at approximately 10.30 p.m. when he claimed he was sitting outside his apartment in his mom's vehicle. He made calls to other friends later that night around midnight, proving that he was in possession of his phone and it was not in his mother's vehicle. A friend of one of his sisters also testified that she was on the phone with his sister around 10.30 p.m., and she could hear Sandra Bentler in the home at that time, meaning Sandra could not have been in Quincy at 10.30. Yeah. Sean Bentler was found guilty on all five counts of murder, and he was given five life sentences, four of which will run concurrently, and one will run consecutively. Good. So at least he's not getting out of prison anytime soon. No. The judge ordered that the punishment for killing his mother, Sandra Bentler, to run consecutive to the others because he could clearly hear on the 911 tape that she begged her son for her life and he shot her anyway. The motive is believed to be greed as Sean stood to inherit over $2 million from his parents' estate. If his sisters were alive, they would each get a quarter of the estate, and Sean was greedy, and he wanted it all. Jesus Christ. Because he cannot inherit the estate as he caused their death, the estate was put into a trust to be split between Sean's two daughters, the only two grandchildren of Michael and Sandra Bentler. Well, that's good. I mean, at least his... At least the grandkids are taken care of. I mean, if your father's a murderer, at least you 
have financial it's shitty that that's the way it came though right you know that i mean those kids are gonna know that like yeah i have this money because my dad murdered his entire family yeah and and gave two shits about it too right you know god i mean he was so like cunning and just like yeah sociopathic yeah and just the way i mean how can you like it's hard seeing anybody like cry or anything like at least for me like, I couldn't imagine, like, holding a gun to my mom's head and her begging for her life and me, like, like nope, still doing it. Yeah. It's never going to come to that, but it's like, it's Jesus just, I Christ. can't even imagine. And a lot of people said that he was, like, jealous of his sisters and he was tired of his mom and dad being on his case. And I guess his dad had threatened to cut him off financially. Well, you should. I mean, he should have been cut off financially. Like, right. he should have been cut off financially a long time ago. Well, it he seems was a like. grown ass adult. Right. Like, but still, like, I understand having a child young mm-hmm. and, and having like your mom and dad helping. Oh yeah. To a sure. certain to a certain extent. You know, like that's what parents do. Where they you have to help yourself too. Right. And I it mean, doesn't seem like he was he was doing that. No. And the, I mean my point, our parents have helped us along the oh, way, God, but we yes. also have to help ourselves. Oh god, yes. But like the point like the point in time where like all it would have been all cut off is when you said that I was dead to get out of work. Right. Like it wasn't like for um, anything major. You just didn't want to go to work. Right. It's that whole my grandmother died excuse, except you used your father. Right. Who's like a prominent business person, person in the community. Yeah. And then <laughs> And then your boss calls. Yeah. To give his condolences, condolences to your mother. Your mom's like, what the fuck are you talking about? My husband's right here. That, no. Like, yeah, that would have been the point in my life when I've been like, son, here's $50. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> or like, pay, you know, the baby mamas directly if you want to help take care of the grandkids. Right. Well, mm, yeah, I I mean, yeah. He like, didn't I, have either one of these children. They were both with their mothers. Right. And yeah, I guess I could see that. Like if you wanted to help support your grandkids, then fine, support them directly. Right. Well, I mean, you know. and it, it's shitty though that they ended up supporting them directly well, the, because of their because, lives. Because of the shitty circumstances that their son put them in. Yeah. Um they later auctioned off that house and I think the property was split up and like they said the house was sold for or auctioned off like severely under market value because it was a murder house. Yeah, that's kind of one of those things you have to disclose, I think, whenever you're in the, the Zillow listing. Yeah, five bedroom, five bath, five murders. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It is. You want to hear something even more ridiculous? What's that? Sean Bentler still claims his innocence. I don't find that ridiculous. Like, that's just par for the course at this point. He's a sociopath, for sure. Oh, yeah. There's definitely there's definitely some kind of pathy yeah. <laughs> associated with him. So this is the story of Richie and Betty Gibbs of Union County, Illinois. So Southern Illinois. Okay. Mark Gibbs called his uncle on January 6, 1992, asking if he can come over because, quote, something happened to his mom and dad, end quote. The 17-year-old's uncle called police, who responded immediately to the Gibbs home. Richard, who went by Richie, and Elizabeth, who went by Betty, um, lived in a rural part of Union County near Reynoldsville and Jonesboro. And what police found at their home was rather disturbing. 
Richard Gibbs was born in 1955 and married Elizabeth Dangbar on June 7, 1974. Betty was born in 1956. Richie worked as a boiler operator for Uniman Co. and Elko. Betty was a homemaker. And they had one son, Mark Gibbs. He was born September 6, 1974. Mark was a sophomore in high school. He was a really small kid. He was five foot three and weighed 100 pounds. So, I mean. He's tiny. Yeah, he was a small, small kid for a sophomore in high school. Yep. He looked much younger than 17. Neighbors said Mark was quiet but polite and he had no history of being in trouble. When police arrived on January 6, 1992, around 7.30 p.m., they found the deceased bodies of Richie Gibbs, age 36, lying on the floor near the couch with a gunshot wound to his head. His wife, Betty, age 35, was lying on the couch with two gunshot wounds to her head. They had both been shot with a 22 caliber pistol. They appeared to have been watching television when they were killed, and there were no signs of a struggle. Betty, amazingly, was still alive and was transferred to the hospital in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. She was put on life support. Damn. Yeah. The day after the murders, police arrested Mark Gibbs and charged him with the first-degree murder and the death of his father and attempted murder in the shooting of his mother. The 22 caliber rifle was recovered nearby the home and it was identified as one belonging to Mark Gibbs. A gift from a family member the year before. I don't know what it is with 22 long rifles being murder weapons. The murder weapons of choice for patricides. I don't know. Could you imagine though the family member that bought him that gun as a gift and then just to find out that he killed his parents with it? Right. Oh, terrible. When Betty Gibbs died a few days later on January 10th, the charges were upgraded to two counts of first-degree murder. Because Mark was a minor, he was not eligible for the death penalty, which we all know in Illinois it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Yeah, it would have mattered anyway. Three years went by as the lawyers on each side prepared to take the case to trial. Mark Gibbs, who was now 22 years old when he finally went to trial, claimed that he was the victim of child abuse and the murders were self-defense. However, there really weren't any credible evidence to support his abuse claims. In fact, Gibbs told authorities that, quote, he was tired of being grounded by his parents and that he was anticipating bad grades, end quote. Jesus Christ. Right. So, you know, they're saying not only did his parents not abuse him, but he was just upset that he was going to get grounded for having bad grades. And there's not a whole lot of information on this case, and I'm going to tell you why. Because right as they were getting ready to go to trial, Mark Gibbs changed his plea to guilty in 1995. It was a complete surprise, and nobody was expecting it. So there's no trial records for me to to put a FOIA right. request in for anything right. like that. So, I mean, his lawyers didn't even know that he was going to go to, that he was going to give a guilty plea. No. He just, after three years of, like, mounting this self-defense and abuse defense and, and said, all this stuff, it. he was like, no, I just want to plead guilty. Jeez. I did it. 
Damn. Right? Mark Gibbs was given a mandatory life sentence with no possibility of parole in the Illinois Department of Corrections. He's currently serving his sentence at the Pontiac Correctional Center. He has never offered any motive or expressed any remorse. So, I just, I just don't know. Like, 17. Do we think that 17 is too young for life without parole? No. No, at that point, I mean, no. No, I believe that that is the, like, that fits the crime. Yeah. I you mean, know? if you kill both of your parents, that's pretty bad. Right. And, but it, the fact that he was 17, I mean, that's one of those ones where it's it, that's that, that weird territory where they're old enough where I think they can be commit like, tried as an adult. Right. But then there's that you have to do the whole mental aspect of it, too. Well, you know? and we all know that a 17-year-old's frontal lobe, which is responsible for things like delayed gratification and impulse control, it's not fully developed. Right. So, but, I mean, I don't know that that necessarily makes them less culpable, but I think it's important to to know that, though. I mean, their brain isn't the same as that of a 30-year-old. Right, but at that at seventeen, we all know that it's not oh it's 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 not good to shoot your parents. Right, you know, like that's that's what I'm getting with that is. Well, he knew right from wrong. Right, he just didn't care, and you know they say he never offered a motive, but I mean his defense was mounting this abuse theory, and I still wonder if there was anything to that, but that we just don't know. Right, and we don't know, and we'll never know because there was no trial. Right. And I mean, was was he abused? Was he, you know, physically or mentally or sexually abused? We have no idea. Or was he just someone who was disturbed? Was he a confused kid? Was he on drugs? I have so many questions. Yeah. that And unfortunately, without with him taking the guilty plea, you know, it's it is what it is. And that's all it is. Right. So there's a picture of Sean at the time of the murders. And then that's what he looks like now. Okay. He's got those dark eyes. He's got those eyes that have been in prison for 20 years already, 30 years. Yeah, it's you know? crazy. So this is the Bentler family. And you guys can see all these pictures that I'm showing Chris on our website at www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. And there's a lot of pictures. So this is the entire Bentler family, including Sean. That's about what I imagined spoiled rich kid that killed his parents and family would look like. Yeah. And there's Sean in his prison wear. Like, and I know, like, I say that spoiled rich kid, like, our kids are, you know. They're spoiled but upper middle class kids. But there's, <laughs> I mean, like, there's a difference. This, I mean, Sean just seemed like he wanted everything. Like, Given everything, like, everything handed to him on a silver platter with a gold spoon in his mouth. Yeah. You know? And there's a difference, I think, you know, but once again, if I was the dad, once you say I'm dead, I will be dead to you. Yeah. You won't get no more money because I, you will be financially cut off from my situation. So I'm going to tell you something that's going to make you cringe. What's that? I kind of want to write Mark Gibbs in prison and try to find out why he killed his parents. I don't care. <laughs> Just don't put like we're going to we need to get a P.O. box for this. Yes, we do. 
but I need more information. Like it bothered me. Like that's why it's two stories in one, obviously, because I don't have that much information, right. but it bothered me that I couldn't deep dive any further. Cause there's just nothing there. Right. I looked at every newspaper article. Um, you know, like I said, there's no, there's not a whole lot that I can put in a FOIA request for because there was no trial. So there's no testimony. There's no experts. There's no right. nothing, nothing, you know? Nope. I under like, and I understand. And it's, if you want to, I don't care. Just no home addresses. And I put like a fake name on it. <laughs> I just need more information, people. Right. I need to know why he did what he did. And I don't even know if he'll tell me. I mean, it's been 30 years and he hasn't told anybody. Right. He hasn't, you know, at least not that but we has, know of. He's never offered a right. motive. He's never offered remorse. Well, has anybody even pursued it, though, either? I don't know. I think I'm going to. Like I said, and guys, this is what I get for marrying somebody that's addicted to true crime to the point that where that she's starting to write killers in jail, you know, and it's just, <laughs> I just have to know it's going to bug me because I, I don't know. I know it's going to bug you. <laughs> Well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you want a list of all of our references as well as the pictures, like I said, go to www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. We are now on Patreon. And so we want to give you guys a special offer. If anyone becomes a Patreon um, by Friday at 6 o'clock, I am going to send you some merch regardless of which level you sign up for. We have bronze, we have silver, and we have gold. Um, and so you're going to get some extra special Midwest Crime Files merchandise if you sign up between now and Friday evening. Yep. And the link for the, our Patreon is in the description below. So, And also we're thinking about doing some kind of fun contest. I think we, we, we had a live event last week and we decided that maybe we have a t-shirt design contest for our patron members. So... We'll do a lot of fun stuff, but if you become a patron, depending on um, which level you come in at, you'll have access to like um, personal chats with Chris and I. You'll have access to exclusive content, um, um, content extra merchandise, content early. Yes. So, I mean, that's, I mean, we love you guys. Like we love the support that we've gotten so far with the podcast, you know, and we just want to keep growing this to be the best that we possibly can. So. All right. And next week, make sure you tune in. We have one doozy of a story. And I know I say that a lot, but next week is next week is a is a pretty pretty severe one. Yep. So I guess we'll talk to you guys later. All right. Bye.